Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combine with big ideas to create game-changing disruption. I'm Sean Mason, founder of Man on Fire, and your host for the Combustion Chronicles. Throughout this series, we're bringing together the most unique and influential minds we could find to have honest conversations about not being okay with the status quo, blowing shit up, and working together to influence our shared future. We believe that when bold leaders ignite consumer-centric ideas with passion and grit, the result is an explosion that creates a better world for all of us. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Harper, Chief of Radical Experiences at Mophie. On today's episode, we're speaking with Terry Jones. Terry is a digital disruptor, an author, and a venture capitalist. He has founded five startups with $2 billion IPOs, Kayak and Travelocity, and has served on 17 corporate boards. His career path has established him as a thought leader on innovation and disruption in our increasingly digital world. As a speaker, author, venture capitalist, and board member, Terry has been helping companies use the tools and techniques he's developed to keep up with the rapidly changing world. Terry began his career as a travel agent, jumped into two startups, and then spent 20 years at American Airlines, serving in a variety of management positions, including chief information officer. While at American, he led the team that created Travelocity.com, served as CEO for six years, and took the company public. After Travelocity, he served as a chairman of Kayak.com for seven years until it was sold to Priceline for $1.8 billion. Terry, we want to thank you for joining us on this episode today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So let's dig in. So excited to have you on with us today. So, Terry, you're a luminary among the innovation ecosystem. Your books and speeches, presentations, and advice are sought after all over the world. So you made a remark during your 2017 TEDx talk at Lake Tahoe that you are on Medicare. You don't need to be taking risks anymore. You do it because you want to. Where does that want, where does that desire, where does that passion come from? And what drives you to do more, be more, and change more in this world? Well, you know, I, I think th- I'm very lucky. My, my mom made me curious. When I was little, she took me to the library, and I became a voracious reader, and I still am today. I read very broadly, whether it's magazines or online. You know, it could be everything from history to popular mechanics. And I think studying widely is extremely helpful for an entrepreneur because We're about putting things together in combinations nobody's ever thought of before. And secondly, my dad, he was a tinkerer. He was a ham radio operator and liked to build things. And we built go-karts and radios and put together stereos back in the days when you could do it yourself. And so I became kind of a builder. Uh, And I've never lost those two traits, I think. And to me, you know, moving forward and change is exciting. Uh, there are a lot of people who are afraid of change. You know, they want to hold on to the past and they're afraid of the future. I can't wait for the future to be here. And I want to be part of changing it. So I've always been that way. And I'm glad I still feel that way, even though I'm, I'm on Medicare. <laughs> I, uh, I'm still doing things. My last startup uh, didn't work. It failed. And, you know, when I look at that as a $15 million postgraduate course and what not to do. So I'm still learning. I'm so glad that your honesty and transparency came there. 
we live in a world where people don't even want to talk about failure, Terry, right? And here you're a big time executive. And you talk about, you know, your last startup failed with an expensive learning opportunity. Can you tell us like, what did you learn? What was the one nugget that you walked away from that and went, wow, this is my biggest learning from that? This was an AI startup, and it started because I got a call from Ginny Rometty, the chairman of IBM, who I knew, and she asked me, could I come up and teach Watson, IBM Watson, about travel? So I worked with them for a while. That spun out. They invested in a startup. But, you know, we were taking technology first and then looking for the problem. I think we solved some really interesting problems. We did some amazing stuff with voice that really increased travel bookings. We did some terrific things with image analysis, review analysis. But it wasn't until the company failed that I managed to see a report from McKinsey that showed of all the industries who were adopting AI, travel was dead last. So I was pushing a rock up a mountain. Travel just isn't using AI. They should be. They're the biggest part of e-commerce, but they're not. Even though I knew the industry well and I figured out what to do, IT just wasn't ready to take the risk of AI. So I learned, uh, you know, maybe to study more. We thought we'd done enough. We zigged when we should have zagged. Right at the end, we moved from selling to IT to selling to marketing. And that worked a whole lot better because marketing guys take a lot more risk than the IT types. But it's just, uh, we needed a longer runway and the money wasn't there. And that that does happen. Wow. Well, and on that note, Terry, you know, just studying your history and all of your story, I find just hugely both fantastic and inspirational. And in that, I know that you were working inside American Airlines and things were going great, right? You, you certainly seems like you could have stayed there. And yet you took that big jump and jumped into what eventually became Travelocity as a startup. What's that like? What happens in that? And I can't, I, I just, I've taken smaller risks that basically debilitated me for weeks. So I'm just in awe of someone like you who's willing to take that kind of risk, knowing that something's out there. And then for that to turn into such a successful venture. And there had, I mean, for me, panic moments are normal. There had to have been panic moments, right? What, what were some oh, of those yeah. things you lived through? I had taken risks before, but when I did my first startup, I was single. I was 21. I didn't have any money anyway. So that wasn't a big risk. <laughs> when I did Travelocity, you know, I was CIO. I had a big salary, a more big mortgage, a family. But being a CIO turned out to be quite boring. It was sort of an orchestration job. And I just thought this online thing was going to be big. So, you know, I went into it with my eyes wide open and I knew the economy was good enough. I could go be CIO somewhere else if it didn't work, but I really wanted it to work. I'll tell you the hardest thing that happened to us. There were a lot of people inside American who were envious of the amount of money we were spending and losing because every startup loses money. And they said rightly to the bosses, we can put that money to work right away and take it to the bottom line. And they were correct. So after all that carping, my boss gathered all the executives together from our Sabre division. And we had a Harvard style debate about whether to keep Travelocity or sell it because we could have sold it for a couple hundred million bucks. And I didn't get to participate. I had to just watch. I was scared to death. In the end, the eyes had it and we decided to keep Travelocity. And the best part about that was 
it shut up all the carping because people had gotten all their arguments on the table. I asked my boss about 10 years later, I ran into him. I said, what would you have done if they said sell it? He said, well, I wouldn't have sold it, but I don't know how the hell I would have figured that out. Right. (laughs) So it's hard inside a corporation. I mean, I had to, I moved out of the building because I wanted to change the culture. Right. I worked hard to, to separate us from corporate purchasing and corporate finance and even parts of IT because they moved too slow. I had to go outside for advertising because Sabre was was a B2B company. We were selling computers to travel agents. They didn't know anything about consumer advertising. So I had to separate my budget, right? And, and really become a little corporation inside of American, which wasn't done. But doing those things, and I also brought in a bunch of people in from the outside. And that took me a long time. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to hire from the inside big companies. Mm-hmm. I said, look, I already got those guys. I don't want more of them. I want different guys and gals. And... Those four things were very important. And in fact, they're in my book, which is called On Innovation. And it's one of the reasons I get to speak so much is because corporations want to understand how they can do that. And it's about putting an idea in a greenhouse. It's like a flower in the spring. You have to protect it until it grows up. And then you can take it out and either split it up, spin it out, make it a department or a division. But when it's small the corporate white cells will surround it and kill it, right? Like <laughs> like a germ. Yeah. You talk about it, it sounds so simple, right? Like you go start this up, you pull it out of the company, you go do this. But it seems like in my experience and what I've worked in, done some of that space too, that, that people struggle with that. And I'm sure you saw it, like you said, in American to do that, but you've done it successfully several times. Do you think that's your secret sauce? Do you think that's a methodology that everyone could use? Or have you just been lucky at it? Well, luck always plays a great part in, in all the success. But, you know, I was lucky in that, you know, I did my first startup at 21, did that for five years, turned that into the 50th largest travel company in the U.S. Then I jumped to my second startup, which was selling mini computers to travel agents. That company got sold to American Airlines. So I'd done two small companies. Then 18 years in America, and I I had a couple of thousand people on a $300 million budget. So I knew how to run something pretty big. And that's kind of unusual experience because many times the entrepreneur who's great at starting isn't so good at running, right? And I'd done both. So that was very helpful to me in Travelocity It was helpful to me, you know, by the time I became chairman of Kayak, I'd been on several public boards. I knew a lot about board work. I knew how VCs had worked. So I had a lot of real world education along the way that's been incredibly helpful. And, you know, that's one of the reasons now that I do so much board work and I work with startups all over the world, because I hope I can give back to them some of those learnings that I painfully got and caused me to lose my hair over the years. (laughs) You're quoted to saying, and I love this, that we are at a time when two guys and a dog in a garage in Silicon Valley have as much computing power as the biggest company in the world. I'm sure that doesn't make people that work in the world of IT um, happy. Why have you made this decision to focus your energy and your guidance on corporate innovation, on corporate boards, Why do you stay there and not go more back into the startup space that are really disrupting these companies? I really do both, but let's start with the first part of your question. 
you know, I look, corporations have tremendous assets. They have the sales force, they have the supply chain, they have the brand, they have the factory, they have capital. They just lack the will to change. Their discovery muscle gets a whole lot stronger than their delivery muscle. And, you know, the smart ones can change, but many have a hard time. So I'm happy to help them because I'd like to see America continue to be an innovative country. You know, we're ceding a lot to China and to other Asian countries today who are moving faster. And we don't have to be that way because we're very innovative. And big companies can reach out. They can go to Silicon Valley. They can learn from startups. They can acquire them or they can invest in them. And they can change and and be successful. And of course, there are many companies who have. I mean, look at American Express. They started as a freight company. IBM's reinvented itself three times, and, and you know maybe with Red Hat, they're going to do it a fourth time. I just spoke at a 100-year-old company, the Hartford Steam Boiler Insurance Company. They insure boilers. They just got into the Internet of Things. And I said, how come? And they said, IoT devices are like boilers. They're critical for manufacturing. They're going to break. They need to be inspected so that they don't break. We do that, and they need insurance. So that company is going to be 200 years old. So in helping those companies... I think there's lots to be done in major corporations. If they can just get out of their own way, I like to help them. Now, on the other hand, I do work with lots of startups. I'm an angel investor. I'm on three startup boards, two startup boards right now. I work for the U.S. Department of State and travel around the world, speaking to incubators and startups, trying to help them. So I kind of do both, but uh, the corporations have more money, so they can hire me to speak. I like that part, too. (laughs) That's such an interesting lens to say that they don't have a desire to change these companies. I think for me, I've always thought that maybe they did have a desire to change. They just didn't know how or didn't have the capability to do it or, or just needed a little bit of push. It's, it's, there's so much focus on the quarter and making a quarter and pushing out the product and improving the quality. And, you know, I don't have to change. And so I'm spending a lot of time convincing people that they ought to change. Now, where are we today? A huge disruption, COVID, travels off the restaurant businesses in the tank. A lot of businesses are going to change and they're going to make changes. And I just read a survey, 70% of European executives say that digital transformation is going to accelerate because of COVID. So people are going to be applying robotics and 3D printing and AI and all the technologies I talk about in my book, Disruption Off, on an accelerated pace. So, you know, crises have a way of uh, focusing people's attention. This is a terrible crisis. I wish it had never happened. But now that it has, let's not let it go to waste. Is it the catalyst to get over the fear of change? Yeah, I think because people have to change. You look at your future. If you're a cruise line, you say, I got to change. If you're a hotel, I got to change, right? Or I was on a public board meeting yesterday where they said, you know, our company has always been opposed to working from home. The new CEO we got six months ago says, look, it's working great. I'd like to get rid of our building. You know, I don't need to pay for that real estate anymore. Thinking of a lot of new ways to work. My son is a, is a gaming game company executive. His company prohibited working from home. Now they have 5,000 people working from home. It's great. Amazon's contactless store, Amazon Go, looked kind of crazy a year ago. Now it looks like they had a crystal ball, right? So everybody's going to have to go that way. 
there are a lot of these changes that companies are looking at as opportunities. I have a friend who lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland. He sent me a picture of his dog barking at this little robotic grocery delivery robot that was driving by on the sidewalk. Well, those were prohibited before, but guess what? The rules changed overnight. Same thing for telemedicine. So who's going to be the leader in telemedicine, right? Who's going to be the leader in robotic delivery? Who's going to jump on drones faster than anybody else? Who's going to flip their business model to respond to these changes? Those are the people who are going to be the leaders coming out. And unfortunately, I think, you know, also right now, that VC-backed startups are going to have a tough time. New ones aren't going to get funded right now because VCs are trying to keep the current ones alive. So it is the existing well-capitalized companies and well-capitalized startups who got a shot at coming out of this better than they were before. Yeah, that's interesting, this whole VC world, right? That you see VCs now lending money to these big corporate companies so they stay alive, right? And you've talked some about, you know, the two books on innovation, turning on innovation in your culture teams and organization. And then just recently in 2019, disruption off the technological disruption coming for your company and what to do about it. We kind of have a tagline here. Uh, our tagline at Mofi is disrupt or be disrupted. Yeah. So we are going to have a new norm coming out of this virus. What is the travel industry, in your opinion, what's the biggest disruption they're going to have to do, business model change, coming out of what's happening right now with COVID-19? Well, I think the first thing they're going to have to do is engender trust. And that's not going to be easy. Hyatt just uh, worked with somebody to create like a seal of approval for cleanliness on their hotels. People are going to have to believe the hotels are safe and clean. People are going to want contactless hotels where I, you know, I don't, I hate these hotels where they say, we have app check-in. Please use the app and come to the front desk. <laughs> Why? Why do I do that? Why don't I just go to the room? I can use my phone to open the door. They kind of missed the point. They're going to have to understand contactless well. Airports are changing. Ethiad has a new check-in system that takes your temperature and checks your respiration. And if you're not within norms, you're going to the ticket counter. You're probably not getting on the plane, right? That's going to happen. Temperature checks. I mean, I'm on the board of Boingo. We run the Wi-Fi and cell service in most of the big airports in the country. There are all kinds of new opportunities because it's going to be track and trace, take your temperature, check your respiration. Are you social distancing? All that stuff is going to be delivered by tech. So that's a big change. I think another big change is that international travel is going to take a long time to come back. Domestic travel is going to be where it's at. And road trips are going to be bigger than ever. Road trips are already about half the travel in the United States, but there's no travelocity for road trips. You know, a couple of startups, but somebody's going to go big and get that done. I'm on the board of a company that is trying to be the Airbnb of RVs, recreational vehicles, because they sit around most of the year. Well, RVs are going to be big. Hey, it's my own airplane. It's my own hotel. It's my own restaurant. I clean it myself. I don't have to worry about anything. I just drive to the national park right? So I think hotels are going to have to refocus. Business travel is going to go down because people approve. They can use Zoom, right? So that's going to be tougher on things. And they're going to have to rethink their models. Cruise ships, I got no clue. They're going to have a hard time for a while. Yeah, you're, you're breaking my heart there, Terry. I spent some time at Disney Cruise Line, and then it's probably our, our 
biggest vacation that my family takes. We just had to cancel our Alaska cruise this year. But it is this trust. You know, uh, Michael and I had to travel at one point in March and walked into a hotel where we were with two other people, but we were four of 20 people staying in a 150-room hotel. Wow. And uh, we're pretty loyal to one brand. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting perspective on how you say that, and especially the international travel piece, you know. I know you do international travel. We oh, a lot. Yeah. We've done it a lot. And how the airlines are doing it, I saw where Emirates Air is doing the where they do a blood test. I think travel has a hard time. But I think other businesses are going to be so creative. I have a neighbor who runs a big restaurant chain and, you know, they're rethinking how they're going to do it. Instacart's hiring 300,000 people to deliver groceries. McKinsey says half those people will never go back to the store. I don't know why I would. We're ordering and it's working great. You know, those kind of e-commerce is up 47%. People aren't going back, you know. So I think that people have to rethink. You know, Zappos lives on sending stuff out and getting it back. So they're going to have to be, build a huge disinfectant tank, mm-hmm. right, for everything that comes back for a while. Business is going to be different. But look at how much we've been innovating. People are using 3D printers to build new kind of door handles, to build masks, to build respirator parts. And I think companies are looking at these long supply chains and saying, hey, I'm going to stockpile which is a very 19th century term, instead of just in time. Because I can't take that risk again. I talked to other large companies who said, we're going to split our departments across countries so that if one country gets ill, we don't stop doing something. I talked to another company who said our business process outsourcing isn't allowing us to close our books because the outsourcers are sick. So we may have to bring that back in or change how we do it. Absolutely. Wow. Speaking of all the travel that you, you were talking about, you know, your life, of course, has been centered around travel. I'm almost afraid to ask, how many countries have you been to? About 106 or seven. Something. Oh, my goodness. That's fantastic. Well, and we know that when we travel, we change, right? Every time we have an opportunity to be in a different context and be with different folks, we change. I would love to know how all of those travel experiences have affected your business mindset and your innovation and your disruptive mindsets of of how that all goes together. I have to believe there's some connection there. Oh, yeah. No question. When I give uh, commencement addresses, and I do them (laughs) every couple of years, you know, I encourage all the students to travel right then. I was very lucky. I thought when I graduated from college, I was going to the Vietnam War. I had a low draft number. But luckily, I got rejected because of my eyes. Would have gone if I had to, but was very happy not to. And so my roommate, his father was a pilot for TWA, and he had a free pass. He said, I'm going around the world for a year. I said, I'll go with you. So three of us spent a year going around the world. Best postgraduate education I ever could have had because I learned so much. I learned about how amazing America is because I saw the lack of freedom in other countries. I also learned why people don't like America, right? Because of some of the bad things we do. I learned how different perspectives can get to the same place. And I think it's really helpful to see, you know, success and how it's shaped around the world. Now, what's cool today is, as I speak to these startups, and I've been to Mexico, Malaysia, Iceland, even outer Mongolia, everybody's in black turtlenecks and blue jeans, and they're changing the world. They're kind of the same around the world. And that's interesting. But they 
look at their country and solve the local problem in a local way. And that's always mind bending to say, can I bring that back to the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Look at how China, you can't use a credit card in China anymore. You could only use Alipay. And Americans go over there and say, well, would you take my credit card? No, get a phone. We don't do that here. We're not that advanced. So it's, I think it's fun to learn from others. It's huge. Absolutely. As we start to close here, Terry, we have a little bit of fun here at the end. We call them our combustion questions that we've written during this time. Three questions. They're going to be fun for you to answer just for people to learn a little bit more about you. And Michael has been working diligently on them as we've been going through. So do I get to call a friend or have a lifeline or anything? No, call a friend, no <laughs> lifeline on this. You know, okay. you can't say pass, none of that. So, All right, let's go. Uh, so we're going to jump right in. Michael. All right. So, Terry, here are your combustion questions. Number one, if you could have a never-ending candle that smelled like anything you wanted it, what fragrance would you want it to be? Northwoods. I spent 12 summers canoeing in Canada, and I'm the chairman of a great big boys and girls camp up in northern Minnesota where we get out in the woods every summer. I love it up there. I would love that fragrance. That would be great. I want to go to the camp. Right. (laughs) Number two, do you make your bed every day or no? I don't. When I was a bachelor, I did, and I was a bachelor about five years ago for a while. Now I get out of bed and just get at it. And my wife says, why didn't you make it? And she makes it. So I should, I've, I've listened to Admiral McRaven's speech about make your bed, but he hasn't convinced me yet. I'm with you. Well, I, I, let me have a talk with her and we'll, we'll, we'll come up with a better plan because you have to make your bed every day, Terry. Okay. Or you don't. Either <laughs> Final question. What do you think about jellyfish? Well, I think they're beautiful to look at, and I wouldn't want to touch one. I, and there are a lot of things like that in life, aren't there? Exactly. <laughs> Just say, nah, I don't think I'm going to go there. So I think they're cool. I have manta rays are even cooler. Oh, I love manta rays. Yeah. Well, you know, Terry, thanks. What a great amount of knowledge. Just love it. Being a traveler myself. I'm hearing your perspective and where we're going to go in the travel industry. And we thank you so much for your time today and your knowledge that you've um, just given back to us. So thanks. Stay safe and be well um, during this time. Well, thank you very much. And to the audience, if you want to learn more, it's on innovation and disruption off, uh, both available on Amazon. Really quick, snackable reads. I think you'll have fun with them. And Really, thanks a lot for having me on today. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. None of this would be possible without you, the listener. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, look us up at Man on Fire Social on Instagram and Facebook, or find us on YouTube at the Combustion Chronicles. Give us a shout and join our disruption movement. And check out this episode's downloadable recap page at manonfire.co. We know you lead a busy life, so if you're driving, exercising, or maybe you're just blowing your own shit up, don't worry. We've already taken the notes for you. Each recap is filled with guest information, episode themes, quotes, resources, and more. And remember, please subscribe, rate, and review if you like what we are doing. And if you don't, do it anyways. Stay safe and be well.